welcome to another ABI podcast. I'm Amy Quackenboss, the Deputy Executive Director of the American Bankruptcy Institute. Today, I'm being joined by David Cox and Elizabeth Gunn, who have co-authored the newest edition of ABI's book, Consumer Bankruptcy Fundamentals of Chapter 7 and 13 of the Bankruptcy Code, which just went on sale in the ABI bookstore. By introduction, David Cox is an attorney with Cox Law Group in Lynchburg, Lynchburg, Virginia, where he practices bankruptcy law throughout the Western District of Virginia. His practice focuses exclusively on the representation of consumer debtors in bankruptcy and related proceedings. Prior to entering private practice, David served as a judicial law clerk for the late Honorable William E. Anderson, U.S. Bankruptcy Judge for the Western District of Virginia. He is a past member of the Virginia State Bar's Board of Governors for the Bankruptcy Section and has been included in Virginia Business Magazine's list of the best bankruptcy lawyers in the state. David is an ABI member and currently serves as the Consumer Committee's Communications Manager. In 2011, David became a permanent member of the Fourth Circuit Judicial Conference, and in 2013, he was inducted as a fellow of the American College of Bankruptcy. My next guest is Elizabeth Gunn. She's an assistant attorney general and bankruptcy representative in the Office of the Attorney General Division of Child Support Enforcement in Richmond, Virginia. She represents the division in bankruptcy matters throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia and the country. She also represents the division in juvenile and domestic relation courts throughout the state, and she advises and prepares proposed policies for the division related to bankruptcy. She previously practiced with several law firms representing creditors, lenders, asset purchasers, official committees, and other parties in interest in cases under all chapters of the Bankruptcy Code. Elizabeth is a co-chair of ABI's Consumer Committee is an, and is an at-large director and member of the local IWORK board. She is also a chair-elect for the Virginia Bar Association's Bankruptcy Section, as well as the Richmond Bar Association's Bankruptcy Section, and she serves on the board of the Federal Bar Association's Bankruptcy Section. She is also a frequent author for the ABI Journal and edited the Best of ABI the Year in Bankruptcy 2016. Most recently, Elizabeth was honored as one of ABI's 40 Under 40 honorees in 2017. Hello, David and Elizabeth, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Um, just as an initial matter, I need to say that I do work for the Attorney General of Virginia and that any uh, comments or information provided are a result of my own experience and not as a representative of the Attorney General or the Division of Child Support Enforcement um, as just way of disclaiming all of that information. But thanks for having me. Well, thanks for, to both of you for being here and for um, putting the time and effort into writing um, the newest edition of our Consumer Bankruptcy Fundamentals um, for Chapter 7 and 13 book. Um, this is the fourth edition of this book. So what made it motivated you all to write this edition now? Uh, this is David. I, I, you know, this book is really an excellent uh, resource. It started in 2003 with Thomas Yurvich at written the first edition. And of course, that was before the, the law changed that, um, under BAPSIPA. And there was another edition done in 2005 when BAPSIPA came through, really sort of predicting what might happen. Another edition came through in 2011, looking back at how some of those BAPSIPA predictions came uh, came through and, and, and evaluating, you know, what, what the issues how the issues ultimately were determined by the court. So here we were six years later, and I think there's been so much case law since then, and and frankly, so many people practicing bankruptcy now, particularly in consumer bankruptcy, may not have ever even practiced before BATSIPA. So it's it's it was a good time to um, to to do an update and really look at the law and how it's matured since all of the amendments. 
it also is timely to look at going forward because of some major changes in consumer practice uh, in December 2017 uh, and going forward with all those changes. So it was a good time to reflect on the changes we had had and almost like one of the previous editions did, guess what may be some of the changes in the future and help uh, forecast those changes as we go forward. And um, since the last edition of the book, there have been a couple of Supreme Court cases that have really um, caused some ripples in consumer bankruptcy practice. Can you tell us about these cases and how they've changed consumer bankruptcy law? Sure. Um, there, there have been a number of cases, and some of them have had very direct impact on uh, on consumer debtors, and some maybe more theoretical. Uh, so, for example, in the Harris versus Vigalon case in 2014, the decision from the Supreme Court ultimately found that the debtor who converted from a Chapter 13 to a 7 was entitled to the return of any post-petition wages that had not yet been distributed by that trustee. And, and so that, of course, had a really an immediate and direct impact on, on our clients and, and, and I have a consumer practice because it made us give much more thought to the timing of those sorts of conversions and the impact of of them. Um, other cases, uh, Bank of America versus Colquette was in 2013, uh, really clarified an issue that had uh, had developed among the circuits and, and to, to find that in a Chapter 7 debtor could not strip off a a wholly unsecured second mortgage. Uh, so that obviously had great impact on uh, planning of cases and and selection of chapter. Um, and then then on the more theoretical side, there, there have been cases such as the Law versus Siegel case in 2012, where, where the, the Supreme Court really came down and made clear to say that 105, the section that sometimes bankruptcy practitioners feel like is the answer to any problem, um, that Section 105 can't be used to contravene the express provisions of the code. So, so for example, in, in that case, uh, they were dealing with uh, a, a trustee who was seeking to surcharge a debtor's exemption on otherwise exempt property to, to essentially pay for or fund um, the administrative expenses that the trustee had incurred. Now, the thing was, the, of course, the trustee had incurred those expenses in pursuing the debtor's fraud, but, um, but, but 105 alone wasn't enough to do that because there was no provision under Section 522 or anywhere else in the bankruptcy code that allowed for the surcharge. So while that was sort of a, a theoretical or a very specific issue that's it's somewhat unusual, I think what was interesting about it is that it, it really uh, showed the court's um, concern about reading too much into the code. I think an interesting thing also from the Harris v. Vigalon decision, the first one you mentioned, David, is the impact it's had on the administration of Chapter 13 cases by trustees. Because there's this provision that the debtor is going to get back money, we've seen much more, many more motions filed to allow for interim distributions before a plan is confirmed or motions to um, distribute, you know, outside of confirmation. Because a lot of times in, prior to that decision, the trustee would hold a significant number of funds in some cases because some debtors were paying one or $2,000 a month 
four, five, six, seven, eight months, um, and then be able and then seek to distribute that money if it was going to be converted. And now we're seeing many more motions to fought, to pay uh, interim distributions or previous distributions, especially for priority claims or things that would in some ways benefit the debtor. And sometimes they do consent to the motions as opposed to having those funds returned. And we're seeing trustees work really hard to carry a smaller balance in cases so that if there is a conversion, at least creditors have gotten as much benefit as possible during the case. So in addition to the debtor side considerations, it's been an interesting um, sea change of having these motions to allow for distributions prior to a fully confirmed Chapter 13 plan. Those are all interesting issues and um, ones that now can consumer practitioners are dealing with. Um, and as you mentioned, David, the book really does a great job of walking practitioners through a consumer bankruptcy case, really um, soup to nuts. And one important chapter focuses on the filings that need to be done when you file a, a, a bankruptcy petition, including the schedules and statement of financial affairs. Um, what impact did the changes in the bankruptcy rules enacted in 2015 if, um, have on a debtor's approach to completing um, these documents and maybe some other um, initial um, filings that they have to do? Well, it, it really was a significant change. All, all but six of the official bankruptcy forms were changed, and it really changed uh, uh, pretty dramatically. Um, the idea was one of simplicity. The idea was to make the, in part, to make the forms easier to to complete. In reality, or in practice, I'm not sure that that goal was reached. In my own practice, I would say our average petition size or petition including the schedules and the statements went from about 35 pages to about 60 pages. Wow. Uh, so just just in a matter of, of trees and paper, it really increased. Uh, some of the, the schedules became much more complex. Even even the budget, for example, which used to amount to about two pages, typically extends over three or four now. So, so I suppose that ultimately it's the same information, but it, it is put in a different form and a different format, and, and frankly takes uh, uh, care to to really determine how to input that information. And we all, most practitioners have software, so that certainly helps. Mm -hmm. I'd say for, for those of us who don't actually fill the statements and schedules out, in some ways it's made it more difficult for the experienced practitioner to find what they're looking for. It condensed a schedule, for example, schedules E and F, which used to be priority claims and unsecured claims, it condensed them into one filing uh, and one piece of paper. So sometimes... As a priority creditor, you have to dig around to find the information you're looking for. Um, I do think from a non-expert perspective, from a person who may be looking at the schedules and statements for the first time and takes the time to read all of the words on the paper, they might be more informative. They, they are not quite as uh, dense in the legal uh, and more expl explanatory in the information that's contained there. But I do think not just trees on paper, but for those folks who look at these every day, either to evaluate them from the creditor side or fill them from the debtor side or, or, or evaluate them from the trustee's side, it, it has, as David said, just made it more voluminous and, and harder and more paper to look through to find the information you're looking for. 
And does that increase the cost um, necessarily that you know you're you're incurring, or are you able to save? I mean, through the software, are you able to still have the same amount of cost? I, on the credit think, side, we, it increases cost because mm-hmm. we're paying eight cents a page mm-hmm. to Pacer to, to download them. To print them. it out, so right? Mm-hmm. Most, yeah, yeah. To, well, not, not even to print it out, just to download it. Oh, yeah. So mm-hmm. if 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 I'm if I'm looking at the statements and the schedules because we don't get an automatic notification or an automatic link um, through the BNC noticing system of statements and schedules. We do of the notice of the filing. We do of the copy of the plan. We get a one one free shot at those by being listed as a creditor. But statements and schedules. Um, we have to pay for. So if you think about that, we're adding maybe a third more cost than what we had before every time we're downloading those. And, and again, 16, 20, 25 cents doesn't seem like a lot now or 60 cents, but you add that up over a thousand petitions every year, all of a sudden that's an increased cost, even if, if they're not printed, just to download the information. It's an interesting perspective because I didn't think of it that way from, um, again, I really have a, a debtor's practice. And, and one of the great changes that's happened over time and certainly over the course of this book is, is how the, the courts are fully imaged and electronic. And, and so we rarely use real paper in our office after the initial preparation of the documents. So it's it's when we're dealing with PDFs and that sort of thing, for us, we haven't noticed a great increase in expense. Um, you also mentioned the new National um, Chapter 13 form plan in the book. Um, this was just implemented this past December in uh, 2017. What's the word on the street about whether courts are using this National Form plan or are they opting out and what do practitioners um, you know, think about it? This is unofficial, but as of last count, uh, I think about 12 or a dozen localities are actually using the form plan, including where David sits and where I practice about half of my time, the Western District of Virginia. Other than that, I think the other 80-something districts nationwide have adopted um, an opt-out plan. But I I think it's also been impactful in most of those jurisdictions. I I do look at plans from around the country having to look at the, the, the claims that I'm involved in and many jurisdictions went over a substantial overhaul. So while there was an opt-out, even if they're not using the actual form plan, um, there have been substantial changes to plans in most districts nationwide, um, again, some more than others, but it has been something that it has, even though there's not a one plan nationwide, it has made it somewhat easier to find treatment and information that as was the intent of having the nationwide plan. So while there's not that many who have adopted the plan, and, and one of my biggest um, problems with the new plan, and David can comment on this, is that it has one sentence for priority claims, which says priority claims will be paid in full, but it doesn't list them out anywhere. And so talking about those costs, going back to the earlier question, not only are creditors now in the form plan districts having to download the plan, if they want to verify their claim is being included in the plan, they then have to go back and download the statements and schedules. So where in many of the plans prior, um, those amounts were listed out, or at least the creditors were given were listed in the plan, now they're not. So it's been an interesting change moving over to the plan. I think there are districts that are still tweaking their opt-out plans. I've seen notifications from a couple of jurisdictions where they have a new, new proposed form that's going through the approval process in addition to the one they had before. So I, I'm not sure this is the end of new forms. I think as 
these types of issues continue to to work through the process, those opt-out states will continue to uh, fix and, and tweak their their plans. But um, again, I I was at a um, meeting of other government creditors and we were all comparing notes and we seem to think there's about 12 jurisdictions that have, have taken the form plan and everybody else has, has opted out, but some that meant still a substantial change. I, I would agree. I mean, even the, the courts that opted out have uh, made the plans, the plans are ultimately more consistent because of the new rules for the plans. So they're ultimately more consistent. I, I, Elizabeth does raise a an interesting point about, at least in the form plan, there's not a requirement to give detail about which priority creditors are being provided for. I think it just puts more of an emphasis, again, on the, the need for the, the priority creditors to file their allowed claims um, and to be provided for under that plan and ensure they are going to be paid under that plan. But but it's interesting, and the trustees are raising the same concern. Uh, I know our trustee even encourages the use of a non-standard provision that would lay out exactly which priority claims are expected to be paid under the plan, just so that there's no misunderstanding. So it, it definitely has caused jurisdictions to look at what they're using. And so practitioners need to kind of pay attention to that. Um, and, and your book lays that out um, very well. So, uh, but the book is not only for consumer debtor attorneys. It's also provide, it also provides guidance to creditors in, um, con- in um, creditors in consumer cases. So can you identify some of the chapters that are aimed at creditors, and how have things changed for creditors since the last edition of the book was published? Now, Elizabeth has mentioned a couple things, but um, are there other things that um, creditors should be aware of? We do. There is a Chapter 8, which is creditor concerns, which is obviously where I would point creditor attorneys to look in the very first part, and that talks about the big ones, trustees, avoidance powers, protecting interest if you're a secured creditor, um, and things for the unsecured creditor to do. We don't necessarily address priority creditors specifically there, but um, it, all the information um, pertains. There's also other information that can carry over for creditors on the, the automatic stay and when and when and how that impacts um, you know creditors, uh, dischargeability, when and how that might impact a creditor, um, and then obviously um, pre- pre-petition transfers, if you're going to end up being kind of a preferential transfer defendant slash creditor, there's information there as well. So while all of it is helpful to know if your creditor's counsel, those are really, I think, the big ones to touch on. Um, creditor practice has has changed. It, it, there is, especially with the new form plan and the new um, proof of claim requirements, a much stricter requirement on getting those proofs of claim in to be uh, considered a creditor, especially in a Chapter 13 case, but also making sure that the creditor is aware of and paying attention to Chapter 7 trustee requests for proofs of claim um, when they find an asset, uh, and shortening the time frame for, for most creditors to file claims. I mean, secured creditors now uh, have a much shorter window to file claims. In addition, they have a much larger disclosure form that must be filed with their proof of claim. Now there is some wiggle room given in the new rules to allow them to file their proof of claim and to supplement it later, but it makes very clear under the new rules and with these new plans that the creditor that doesn't file the proof of claim is not entitled to a distribution. And so filing those proofs of claim and making sure the creditor is an active participant in the bankruptcy or making the choice not to be an active participant, I guess, um, is, is an important part. I, I think it's a creditor beware, buyer beware type of situation. If you're not educated and don't have the, 
ability to participate accurately, you may not get the treatment you're entitled to. And I, I think that's always a theme. Those who show up are treated appropriately and those who choose not to educate themselves on the bankruptcy law are those that risk being treated inappropriately. So while that has not changed, some of these new stricter time requirements and, and the form plan um, timing for filing claims and making sure you treat it appropriately therein sure has changed in the last few years. Sure. And the only thing I would add is just there's a lot of those changes, um, particularly for, for example, mortgage creditors um, in, in disclosing uh, post-petition fees or in um, uh, reporting uh, whether or not a debtor is uh, or payments have been cured under a plan uh, at the end of a plan. A number of those disclosures, while burdensome perhaps to the, the secured creditors, are, are certainly very helpful to the debtor in, in identifying any problems and, and really preventing some potential disputes that might otherwise arise later outside of bankruptcy. Well, um, certainly the book is really made for all, um, as we can see, all um, practitioners who deal with consumer um, bankruptcy. And uh, are, are there is there anything else in the it, that's that you've updated that you know you want to talk about um, about the book, or have we've covered much of it? I think you've I think you've covered uh, uh, most everything that I think would be of help, and certainly the practitioners are really going to find that this book covers such a wide variety, but but has a surprising amount of depth to it. I think um, it's a good source for getting a, a quick answer, or at least leading you to uh, further further research on a particular issue. So. I know that I've found in um, beginning the update from the last edition, I was so impressed at how much had been covered in the book, and it, and it's, it was quite daunting actually. But um, but it's, <laughs> I really feel like it has a great amount of content to it, and we did our best to to update that content. I think it always does, and I, I do. I think we say it in the book as well. It's always important not only to know all the fundamentals like that are in the book that are kind of nationwide uniform fundamentals, but get to know the local procedures and the local quirks of your trustees or your court or the, the bar, the, whether it be a Chapter 7 or a Chapter 13 trustee, because everybody does things just a little bit different, and, and it's important to, to, to know the basics, but to be collegial with the bar and the trustees and, and other counsel. And the more you can learn about where you're, where you're practicing and how, how things are best accomplished, I think the best, that's, that's best for everyone. It gets the creditors the results that they want. They get the better, best return. Um, it helps the debtors get their fresh start and get through the cases more efficiently without a lot of litigation or motions. And um, so I always encourage people, you know, start with, with the information that's in the book. Start with the, 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 the law that applies to everyone, but go and make sure you check your local practice and your local rules and all the local cu- and the local customs as well to make sure you're doing it the best the best way as possible. All great advice. And I also I failed to mention during the intros that David is a member of the advisory um, committee on case administration in the estate for ABI's Commission on Consumer Bankruptcy, which is studying 
potential changes to um, the bankruptcy code and rules. And so, um, I, you know, maybe in the next few years, we'll have yet another book because there may be some additional changes. So, um, but if you want to check out the um, Consumer Commission's work, you can go to consumercommission.abi.org. So thanks so much, David and Elizabeth, for all your hard work on this book and for taking the time to join us today for this podcast. Um, if you are interested in purchasing the new edition of Consumer Bankruptcy Fundamentals of Chapter 7 and 13, uh, visit the ABI Bookstore at abi.org bookstore. And so from ABI headquarters, thank you for listening and have a great day. 